This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to episode 169 of the Global Lithium Podcast. No guest today, a solo episode. I will talk about my recent trip to Australia and some of the learnings from down under. This particular trip was anchored by three speaking events in Perth, Sydney, and Melbourne. And there were bonuses along the way. I was invited uh, to tour Liontown's Kathleen Valley project, which was much more impressive than I anticipated. The following day, I did a podcast with their CEO, Tony Ottaviano. It's episode 168, and if you haven't listened to that, you may want to give it a listen. But let me back up a minute. When I landed in Sydney and was waiting for my flight to Perth, I got an email from someone who asked me if I would like to be on the Money of Mine podcast while I was in Perth. I'd never heard of these guys. I went onto YouTube, found an episode, listened to it, and decided that uh, I could roll with the Money of Mine style. We recorded in Shaw and Partners' Perth office, Their boardroom has a well-stocked bar, which provided excellent lubrication for the hour and 15-minute episode, which, if you haven't availed yourself of, is probably uh, worth it just for the uh, comedic aspects. And I think there's also some great information, so I'll leave you with that. I spent a little less than five days in Perth, but it always astounds me how many lithium companies you can meet in a short period of time in Perth. And it's a great use of time if you want to understand the lithium industry. Perth has become the capital of lithium on a global basis, given the importance of Western Australia and the number of companies with key people based there. I met with over a dozen companies and at least 10 CEOs of either producers or people with projects and process. The best way to stay current in this industry is to travel, meet people, get different perspectives. At two of the events I spoke at, there were a heavy mix of retail investors, which is kind of unusual for me. I normally uh, don't see many retail investors in the meetings I'm in or the places I speak. It's very interesting to hear what's on their mind, some of it insightful and some of it typical of people trying to come up to speed in a space, but being mired in a world of internet nonsense, people tend to come to wrong conclusions. Speaking of wrong conclusions... A couple of uh, the events I spoke at were covered by the press, 
And of course, within a day or two, there's a report that gets out on the internet about what I said or what I think about the industry or supply and demand, price, etc. Fair enough. Uh, that's the nature of what I do. The thing that I wanted to do in this podcast, and admittedly a lot of you won't have read anything about my trip to Australia, but many of you probably have, and I just want to be clear on the real meaning of some of the things I said. It's tough for a reporter to uh, write something in the limited number of words they get, which are going to be edited, and probably the editor is going to put a clickbait headline on it. That's nothing new. That's nothing I can do anything about. But I do like to be clear about what I say. And if I can't always be reported clearly, it's good to put a short podcast like this out to let it be known that uh, taking a soundbite out of a half an hour of remarks doesn't always convey the proper picture. And let me give you a few examples. I did say that I don't believe price will return to the 2019-2020 lows. And that was not based on wishful thinking. It was based on the fact that Supply being added is all over the map in terms of cost. You have some low-cost brine capacity coming on, but you have a lot of high-cost hard rock, especially lapidolite. And as long as those types of higher-cost assets are a reasonable part of the cost curve, you have a price umbrella that is going to prevent price from going back below 10,000 a ton. I believe in my lifetime, uh, it may change when a true circular economy exists. But the reporting was that Mr. Lithium says he'll be dead before the lithium market is oversupplied. In fact, I did say that, but in a much more nuanced way. I was talking about battery quality lithium chemicals over a sustained period of time. And what I mean by that is there will be times in my mind, as is happening this year, where lithium is an inventory in cells, it's an inventory in cathode, and it's an inventory as lithium chemicals at cathode producers and lithium chemical producers. It's a very long supply chain. It gets a little complicated. We live in a world where China has built too much battery cell capacity, too much cathode capacity, and you will have times when more is produced than the current demand warranted. In those situations, when the spot price stalls and then starts to decline, The cathode producers literally stop buying product for a period of time. They don't want to buy if the price is going to be lower next week. If they have some excess inventory, that inventory is going to be drawn down. Their lithium chemical inventories are going to be drawn down. That causes the spot price to drop. China is the biggest lithium battery maker But they've always behaved in ways different than their Korean, Japanese, Taiwanese counterparts. It's always been more volatile in China, and I think we're going to continue to see that. 
Demand continues to rise for gigawatt hours, but if there is a scenario where there's, as happened in 2022, where too much was produced, once there's an inventory drawdown, you're going to see it roll back all the way to the lithium chemical producer. And we've seen that this year. But my point to you is, is if we were in a true oversupply situation, we would see prices go back to the 2019 lows. That is not happening. It's nowhere close. Throw in the efforts of the two largest battery producers on the planet, CATL and BYD, to manage price down through certain misinformation and the way they talk about the market. And this year has seen the spot price drop steeply. But as we stand today, it's still at least 8x higher than the low prices in mid-2020. And if you look at the Japanese and the Korean imports, they are still holding it about double what the spot price lows have been. My point to everybody I talk to about prices, first, there isn't one lithium price. There's a range of lithium prices. Yes, China's the biggest market. Yes, the spot price has become more significant, but it's not the only price. What you should watch closely is the price of spodumene from Australia to China. It's held up pretty well. Yes, it's off the highs of last year, but the BMX price was a small volume at a very high price. Everybody that's comparing the prices today to the high BMX auction price is really generalizing from a small sample. Through August, the Chinese import statistics of spodumene from Australia indicate the average price was still well over 4000 a ton. And I shouldn't need to point out that that's 10 times what it was three years ago. If we were in a real oversupply, would price hold up like that? I don't think so. Early last week, Macquarie put out a lithium report. I met with them in Melbourne, read the report with interest. It does talk about cathode inventories by the major Chinese producers being less than a week versus a month last year. What that's doing, when you take the inventory out of the system, it makes demand look like it's soft. And quite frankly, for a brief period of time, demand is soft. But the whole trend of growing EVs, more gigawatt hours being produced is intact. Look at the numbers year over year and you'll see that. I always try to focus on the bigger picture not on the short-term perturbations of just the China market. From my perspective, and I've said this on the podcast before, the price should never have gone up to 80000 a ton briefly in 2022. It was a panic buying by the Chinese. The cost curve was at about 40, mid-40,000s. I'll just say 45000 and the price got bid up to 80,000. Market forces will do that. On the other hand, when someone like Goldman Sachs makes the statement that Chinese converters will continue to produce lithium chemicals for a sustained period, even when they're losing money, that's abject nonsense. It does happen in short period of times, but China's less in a position 
to have sustained uh, money-losing enterprises than they have been in the past, given their whole economic situation. What I see is, even if you wanted to say the market was in relative balance, and, and honestly, I think there's still an overall shortage, but I don't think there's a massive shortage. Given demand surprises tend to continue to be positive and supply surprises tend to be negative. I see the situation we're in with inventories gutted in the Chinese supply chain is just setting us up for another spot price run up. I'm not saying it's going to happen and I'm not saying if it does when that will be, but that's the history of the industry. Not just in the last five years, it's been like that in the 20 some years I've been doing business with China. I took a bit of heat for some comments I made about the IRA, and I think the Inflation Reduction Act is extremely important. I think it will have to be uh, revised to be fully effective, especially in the upstream. I've made that comment before. From a lithium perspective, does it make sense to tell a company like Livent, a U.S. company that operates in Argentina, that because there's no free trade agreement, they may not fully benefit from the IRA. I think some of the rules are going to have to be adapted for the reality, especially with the objective of trying to engineer around China. I love the idea of the U.S. having a robust battery supply chain, but I think it's going to take about a decade to achieve that. For multi-billions of dollars to be put into battery manufacturing capability in the United States without access to the underlying battery metals that we would need to run those battery plants is foolish on the face of it. It took China two decades to develop the capability they have in lithium conversion. They are not savants. I was there Two decades ago, when nobody wanted to buy Chinese product except for low-end grease producers in Europe and the United States, it's been a long slog to get to the capabilities that they have now. It's going to take the U.S. or Europe or anybody else trying to build the same capabilities a fairly significant period of time to develop them. Just because the original material supplied to the lithium-ion battery industry was hard rock from North Carolina, totally U.S. produced, doesn't mean that they can easily be recreated. United States companies like Albemarle and Livent certainly can make high-quality product now. Unfortunately, much of the capacity they have to do that is based in China. It shouldn't be lost on people that Albemarle never was a great hydroxide producer operating in the U.S. Livent was. Albemarle had to buy a Chinese company to really get in the game of supplying Tesla. People tend to either have never known that or to have forgotten it. I am all for Team America in rebuilding our capabilities. You just have to be realistic and we need to do business with China for a significant period of time in varying degrees, depending on the critical metal, depending on the cathode technology, etc. So the idea that decoupling from China is going to be something that politicians can just mandate 
is nonsense. Shifting gears yet again, it was very interesting that my visit to Liontown just serendipitously coincided with the drama around Albemarle's last bid, which actually was sent to Liontown while I was flying uh, from San Francisco to Sydney. And then Gina Reinhardt decides to buy Liontown and amp up the drama. My visit to Liontown was based on an invitation I had gotten from their chairman in March. It had nothing to do with uh, the events of Avalmoral uh, making the final bid. There was some rumors that uh, because of the timing of my site visit, that it somehow was connected uh, to the ALB Liontown drama. Such is not the case, although I always do get a kick out of rumors that exaggerate the limited influence I have in the industry. To be clear, I have no advisory or financial role of any kind with Liontown. I just like them. And uh, although I have, as strange as it may seem, advised Albemarle in the distant past, I haven't had any kind of financial dealings with Albemarle in over five years. A couple more things. I was asked many, many times in a 12-day trip about the Allchem live event. Uh, merger and what I thought. Some of my remarks may have come across as a bit flippant. I did say at one point in the Q&A that 1 plus 1 equals 1.95. I could have just as easily said 1 plus 1 equals 2.01 or something like that. My point being, I don't think there's tremendous synergy. I don't think either leadership team is dynamic enough to really be a game changer. Let's just remember that I left Livent 11 years ago and their resource extraction capacity is essentially the same as it was when I left. And if you look at what Gangpen's done in the last 11 years, it's been significant. Admittedly, Livent may produce another 3,000 or 4,000 tons this year at the end of the year, they've talked a lot about it. They've talked a lot about a lot of things over the past few years. And yes, they have expanded their hydroxide capacity in China, in Bessemer City, North Carolina. But that's without underlying supporting resource capacity. So that excess capacity that they built in hydroxide is subject to the vagaries of the market for raw material. Not a great strategy. That's why I called it the house of cards back in the day. As a modest holder of both stocks, I hope they do well. I just am not a big fan of uh, this combination unless Paul Graves, the CEO of the new entity, is able to sell it in the next couple of years and get a significant premium. Let's just remember that Saul has been out there. James Bay has been out there. Good assets should have been developed. Somebody with deep pockets and vision in a market that gets increasingly short in the next few years may be willing to pay a premium. And Paul's an investment banker by training. So uh, maybe that'll be the win. One of the most often asked questions by retail investors was, how do I look at projects? I have been very fortunate in some of the lithium investments I've made, I think I have five 10 Xers presently, even with some of those stocks coming off 
15 to 20x price rises that have since corrected. My point to the average retail investor who just seems to sometimes behave like lithium's a casino, uh, you really need to have a process. And I don't tend to invest until a resource is declared. And if you really want to look at the timeline for some of these projects, it can easily be 10 years. Look at Thacker Pass, look at Kachari, more than a decade. Look at Piedmont trying to permit a mine in a county where the lithium industry really began in its present form and not being able to to accomplish that yet. And they, I believe they started down that road in 2016. It takes time. And that's why I always show the Canaccord slide when I present that shows how late projects are. I think the biggest mistake individual investors make is not digging deep enough and believing uh, DFS and PFS and timing and then getting discouraged. I bet based on a reasonable resource and a great team is preferable to a better resource and a mediocre or unproven team. That's the way I look at it. But I think the big mistake people make in looking at this whole industry is overreacting to short-term news and not realizing how hard it is to make lithium chemicals for the battery industry. I'd also say that being a great deal maker doesn't make you a great operator. And I would point out as complimentary as I have been about some of Chris Ellison's deals at Minres, I don't think he's a particularly great operator. And if you look at Mount Marion and Wojana, I'd say there's your evidence. I wanted to keep this to less than 20 minutes, which I have failed miserably, but let's keep it to less than 25 minutes. One of the other things I was called when I was in uh, Australia last week was the Uber Lithium Bull. And I push back on that because if you look at my demand numbers, I am well below Albemarle in 2025 and 2030. I am well below the likes of Deutsche Bank. And apologize for the voice, but I spent the better part of two weeks talking and my voice still hasn't recovered. I am also lower as far as demand goes than Macquarie's most recent uh, publications in both 2025 and outer years. So I don't think I am overly optimistic about demand. I may be a little too pessimistic on supply, but on balance, I am of the camp that the market will not be oversupplied in battery quality chemicals in a meaningful way for an extended period, if that's enough caveats on it. There will be times when the market gets ahead of itself. I believe that. I've watched it happen over more for more than two decades. Sometimes too many gigawatt hours will get made. Sometimes too much cathode will get made. And in China, that will cause a kerfuffle in the supply chain. Spot price will go down. And we'll see what we're in the middle of seeing yet again, that uh, the destocking has set up a situation where once the price starts going up, then the Chinese panic buy. And hopefully it doesn't run up to 80000 this time if and when it happens. I'm not calling it for this year or next year. I'm just saying that 
everything is setting up for another uh, spot price run up. And over time, you'll see a maturation of the way people contract. Some of the issues that we've seen, Abelmarl, for instance, saying their price should be up 20 to 30% this year versus last year when SQMs is, is substantially down. And that goes to Abelmarl signing poorly constructed contracts. And we've also seen this with some of the spodumene producers that tied themselves more to the China spot hydroxide price than a more balanced hydroxide price where contracts in Korea and Japan are much higher than the China spot. Anyway, there's a lot at play. Stay informed. Check multiple sources. Don't trust me or anyone else without doing your own research. On my last full day in Australia... I recorded what will become episode 170 of the Global Lithium Podcast, and that is with Iggy Tan. Iggy ran Galaxy for a number of years, left the industry to do other things, and now is partially back as a non-executive chairman of a new lithium company called, ironically, Lithium Universe, because he tried to call it Lithium Galaxy, and uh, the people at all came which is the obviously the Galaxy or a Cobra merge company, took umbrage at uh, Iggy using the term Galaxy. I am really happy to see Iggy back in the business. He is a big personality and was well ahead of his time while he was at Galaxy. From both a product and industry perspective, Iggy proposed an international lithium association almost a decade before one was uh, finally formed. I think you'll enjoy learning about the history of lithium in Australia as well. Most people don't realize that the first attempt to make lithium chemicals in WA was in the 1990s, and Iggy was responsible for that when he was at what is now Taliesin. In closing, I'd like to thank all the people I met while I was in Australia, especially the podcast fans that took time to come out and have coffee with me. I really appreciate the interest. And as always, thanks to my sponsor, Brinefield Services Company, Zelandez. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com.